Take your Bibles, if you will, with me this morning and turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. As we are continuing on in this study of Israelology, 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, of the book of Romans. And this is coming to a conclusion of the theology portion of the book of Romans. And as we have looked at it, we've begun to understand that God's plan of redemption is perfect. And one of the things I really desperately hope you understand today is that indeed God's plan of redemption is perfect. It has been laid out, it has moved through the history of Israel, and it is very clear and it is very obvious. Over the next several weeks, we are going to be turning a lot back and forth to the Old Testament as we begin to see as Paul lays out the pattern, really sharing the gospel, the plan of redemption throughout the Old Testament. But as we begin to do so, one of my favorite shows growing up was the A-Team. And I know it's kind of cheesy now, but it seems like no matter how many bullets flew, nobody got hurt. No matter how many times the car rolled over, they always crawled out from underneath it. Uh, but one of the things that always uh, happened at the end, events that happened at the end, Hannibal Smith, no matter how many twists and turns the show took, Hannibal Smith would look right straight in the camera and he goes, I love it when a plan comes together. Well, right now, as we look at the plan of redemption, we can truly say, I love it when a plan comes together. Because we begin to see God's plan working through and molding as the people of Israel have continued to accept and reject, continue to accept and reject, and yet God's plan comes together perfectly. Absolutely. And that is kind of what forms our central idea this morning, or our take-home truth, is salvation is offered to all who will confess and believe in Christ as their Savior. This is something that is unique for Israel. They thought they held an esteemed position that made them above everybody else. And indeed, they are the people of God. And they will come back into the main track here very soon. But salvation is offered to all who will confess and believe in Christ as their Lord. So as we begin to think of this idea this morning, let's go to our Lord for our time in His Word. We do thank you and praise you for the opportunity that we have to look into Romans chapter 10. I pray that your Word would be open before us today, that we would understand the truths therein, and that your name would be glorified because of it. Lord, we know that Israel still holds a very special place in the plan of redemption, and will indeed soon, very, very soon, come back into that main track. And as we begin to consider that, I pray that we would have the confidence, those of us who are Gentile believers, that we would have the confidence knowing that you keep your promises faithfully, 100%, and that because of that, we can truly trust in you. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today that do not know you as Savior, that today would be a turning point in their life. That unlike Israel, who says they would obey and become disobedient, that they would indeed finally come to know you as Savior and have their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life and spend eternity with you in heaven. Lord, we do love you and thank you for this time and the opportunity to spend in your word. In your son's name we pray. Amen. This morning we continue to walk through some incredibly exciting truths concerning God's perfect plan of redemption. And in order to be able to do so, we're going to have to break it in half because we've got to look at the last half next week. So you really have to get both sides to this. And really this is part two of three. And so you need last week's message as well, because Paul is beginning to establish and develop this perfect plan as he's walking us through 
So Paul is going to reveal the inability of the righteousness by law today. Remember last week we were understanding Paul's heart's desire. His heart's desire was that the people of Israel would come to know Christ as Savior. Knowing that they had believed that the Mosaic law would give them righteousness, he says it will not. And he reiterates that as we begin this morning. Righteousness by the law is impossible. But righteousness by faith is God's plan of redemption. And he goes and he takes us all the way back to Leviticus and he begins to work us through as we look not only at Leviticus, but Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Joel, and other passages this morning. As righteousness by faith is God's plan all along. And our final aspect is the outflow of the righteousness by faith, and that is salvation to all who call upon His name. All who believe in their heart and confess with their mouth that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. So this morning we begin in verse 5 of chapter 10, Romans chapter 10, verse 5, and Paul is really quoting here from Leviticus chapter 18. And the Scripture says, For Moses writes, that the man who practices righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. So in order to begin to understand this righteousness by the law, we do need to fill in the gaps from last week's message. Some of those things that uh, we need to understand. And one of the key aspects to that is a grammatical one. One that if you look at your Bibles and you will notice, verse 2 begins with what word? 4. Verse 3. 4. Verse 4, 4. You notice the trend? Verse 5, 4. You see, Paul is building upon what he said in verse 1. So we have to understand what he says in verse 1. Let's go back there. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You see, Paul's heart's desire was that the people of Israel would finally come to know Christ as their Savior. That they would recognize that the law was not purposed, was not designed, was not intended to cause righteousness, but rather to show that they could not attain it. And so Paul uses the connective for in every verse so far that he's pointing back to verse 1. So that we recognize Paul is making a very clear statement concerning what the Israelites should have known and why his heart burns for their salvation of this rebellious people. And since the whole chapter builds from verse 1, we recognize then that verse 1 is his true heart's desire. His heart's desire is that they know God. He says, I testify about their zeal. I know they're zealous. He says, I also uh, know that they're pursuing their own righteousness. But I also know that Christ is the end of the law, the conclusion, the final aspect, the end of the law. And then as we move into verse most writes, man who practices righteousness must live. Paul is, is revealing to us, is really answering this question, how could the Jew know? How could the Jew know that it was going to be by faith? You see, God had instilled the law of Moses, not only in the book of Leviticus, but after the people had rebelled against God at the beginning of the book of uh, at the end of book of Exodus and the beginning of the book of Numbers and then wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and they come back to the land not only does God give them the land he gives them the law again for the second time in the book of Deuteronomy so the people have had the law twice so how would they possibly know that they were to achieve righteousness by faith not by law 
Well, Leviticus chapter 18 is where he's going to take us in just a few moments. But we have what we already know. So you can go ahead and keep your finger here and then turn back to Leviticus chapter 18 because we're going to be there in just a moment. Leviticus chapter 18. But as we do that, let me rehearse what we have already come to realize. And that is what Paul has been moving all the way through. The Jew had zeal, but it was misguided by the establishment of their own laws and the abandonment of God's laws, according to Romans 10.3. And Paul is putting together a group of Old Testament passages now, beginning here in Leviticus and moving through, and that all point to the Savior. You know what Paul's about to do? Something totally amazing. He is about to walk us through the gospel as revealed in the Old Testament. Did you know that you can lead someone to Christ without ever using the New Testament? The Jews should have known it. Paul is about to walk them through the gospel. And he begins in Leviticus. And he goes to Deuteronomy. And he goes to Isaiah. And he goes to Jeremiah. And many, many others by the time we are done in a couple weeks. This will take us all the way through this chapter and the next. But by the time we are done, we will understand what the Jew should have understood. God's plan of redemption. God's plan of redemption. So we begin here, we look rather at the righteousness by works. And Paul takes us back from Romans chapter 10. He takes us all the way back to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And the scripture says there in chapter 18, verse 5, and this is during the giving of the law. And the Lord is speaking through Moses, and verse 5 says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. There's a key phrase in there, by which a man may live, if he does them. But as we illustrated last week, was that ever possible? No, remember the passage I used from Deuteronomy last week? There were, the Lord said, if you will faithfully keep my word, there will never be any poor in your land. Deuteronomy 10, 4 and 5. But Deuteronomy 10, 11 says, oh, but by the way, there will always be poor. Because you will not keep my law. You cannot keep my law. Because it's intended not to give you righteousness, but to show you that you need righteousness. And so in Leviticus, the Jews should have understood from 18, 5, they should have understood that by practicing the law, they would have to live by it perfectly, keeping every single aspect of it. Failure in one point was failure of all. Leviticus 18.5 is a favorite of Paul's as he quotes it at least two other times in his letters. Two other places in his epistles does Paul use 18.5 of Leviticus. The context of this passage is the giving of the law to Israel to instruct them specifically to avoid the pagan worship of the people of Egypt and as well to the people in the land that they are going in Canaan. And yet the people have said over and over and over, Lord, we will keep your law, we will obey it. And God says, no, you won't. Because I know you can't. The people says, no, we'll do it. And then they fail. And they fail. And they fail. You see, the intention of the law was that you had to keep it precisely. But you can't do that. So righteousness had to come not by works, but by faith. And that is where Paul is going to take us in just a moment. But Paul, quoting from Moses, 
which is an important theme, by the way, in these three chapters. He quotes from Moses a lot in these three chapters because he's revealing that God's not done yet with Israel. But he summarizes the essence of the law. And the essence of the law is what he summarizes for us as he quotes Leviticus 18.5. He says in Romans again, chapter 10, verse 5, For Moses writes that the man who practices righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. See, Paul says, you know what? You want to practice righteousness by the law? Go ahead and try it. But the first time you fail, you've broken it. You violated it all. You can't possibly keep it at that point. You have fallen short. And James agrees. If we look over at James chapter 2, verse 10, which we'll do just, just for a moment, chapter 2, verse 10, just to illustrate this truth. James chapter 2, verse 10, and the scripture there says this. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, in one point, he has become guilty of all. You see, the Jew, clear back from Leviticus, should have understood that one failure meant that I could not live by the law. Therefore, I need something else. And who told him that? Moses did. Moses did. So clear back when God gave the law through Moses to the people, he told them, you're not going to be able to live by it. So righteousness cannot come through the law. It was not intended to come by the law. And since it is impossible to live this way, the Jew must understand that Christ is indeed the end of the law. And therefore, accept Him by faith. And that is where Paul goes now in verse 6. Righteousness by faith. Verses 6-8 through eight says this, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, you and I may wrestle with this. What in the world is Paul saying? Because he's using a lot of Old Testament illustrations here. He's, he's causing us to go back. But again, Paul begins by quoting from Moses. As he begins to recognize, or to show rather, the pursuit of righteousness. And he goes back to Moses, revealing that the righteousness by faith is not out of our grasp. Righteousness by law is out of our grasp. You and I cannot reach it. The Jew who practiced it zealously could not reach it. And if the Jew who is zealous cannot reach it, you and I can't either. So we recognize that the pursuit of righteousness is not by the law, but rather by faith. And that that pursuit is not out of our grasp. And he takes Israel back to the days just before they were to enter into the promised land. In fact, Keep your finger here and in Romans and turn back to Deuteronomy. I told you, I gave you a little bit of the chronology of what takes place. In Deuteronomy is the second giving. That's what it means. The second time the law has been given. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And Moses is in his last days. Israel, the people of Israel can now see the promised land. And they're about to embark on a journey that is going to take them to cause them to be victors to live in the land of Canaan. But in Deuteronomy 30, we have the second giving of the law. And notice this in verses 11 through 14. Because this is where Paul is quoting from. And he says this, 
For this commandment, which I command you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us, and make us hear it, that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will cross the sea for us and go get it for us, and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. You see, this is the second giving of the law, and this is coming right on the heels of him saying, you can't keep it. You can't keep the law, so we have to pursue the giver of the law in faith. The people are receiving the law for the second time, and they're receiving it for the second time through the same person, through Moses. But it's a different people. You say they disobeyed it the first time. God made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That generation died off. A new generation has come. And I imagine you would see them sitting uh, as they're hearing the law saying, why is Moses going through this again? Well, I mean, we're not like our parents. We're not the same people. And yet they were the very same people. Because they were about to break the law as well. And as Moses is saying, keep the law, they're saying, yes, we'll do it. And God is saying, "Uh uh-uh, it's not possible. And when you find it to be impossible, then... Recognize, verse 14, by the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. You see, the key point is that the generation Moses spoke to had the message. They understood the message. They could respond in faith in their heart. You see, that is, that is what Paul, or that is what Moses is saying. He's saying this should be something that you observe in your heart. See, that's, that's not something that you work for. If you observe with your hands, that's totally different than observe with your heart. Moses was saying, observe with your heart. Since they had the message, they did not need to search for it. It was very near to them. In effect, Paul is saying the same truth applies to this generation back in Romans chapter 10. Keep your finger there in Deuteronomy, by the way, because we're going to be back in a few moments. In effect, Paul was saying that the same truth applies to this generation. We spend billions and billions of dollars searching the heavens for signs of life as if searching the exotics, uh, we're going to find the answers that we seek to the origins and the beginning of life, the purpose of life. There's a rover on Mars right now that's not giving us very many answers as to the origin of life. We spend billions of dollars to do so. And yet Paul says here, quoting from Moses, That the purpose of life, the purpose of the struggle in which we endure, is that you cannot have righteousness by law. You must have righteousness by faith. Freeman writes, Just as the law was brought down to the people of Moses, so also Christ the Messiah has been brought down to earth, has come in the flesh. Therefore there is no need for anyone to ask, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down from above. Also, since Christ has been resurrected, has already been resurrected, there is no need to ask, who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, you, the Jews, are not asked to do the impossible when it comes to faith. It is absolutely impossible to have righteous... However... We were not asked to, and neither were they. You see, 
we were not asked to search for something that is unreachable. And the key is found here in verse 8. Verse 8 of Romans chapter 10, it says, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are preaching. This is the spoken word. This is the gospel message by which Paul and the other apostles proclaimed. We do not have to go climb mountains to hear it. We don't have to go to Mars to hear it. We don't have uh, to do anything in the pursuit of it except to respond. Except to respond. And we are to respond then in obedience. Look at verses 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10. The scripture says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What a significant promise that is made here. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You see, verse 9 is very close to the response that Moses expected from the people. Now, they didn't know uh, all the details about the coming Messiah. They knew from Genesis chapter 3 that there was going to be one. They knew through Abraham that there was a significant covenant made with Israel. They knew that there was going to be one that was going to come. They didn't know many details, but they knew that was one they should have faith in. The work has already been done, but the confession and the belief are left to those who will obey the Lord. Often people will say that it is not fair that there is only one way to heaven. First off, I wanted to our idea of fairness is it's ridiculous. And secondly, God is not fair, He is just. God is just. For us to say it is not fair is a bogus statement. For God to say there is only one way to heaven is just. Praise the Lord, there is one. And these people who say that it's not fair, that there is only one way to heaven, are the people who do not want to be obedient. They may be zealous for the things of the Lord as the Jews were, but they do not ultimately want to be obedient to the Lord. We confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. And that belief, that belief produces faith, which produces righteousness, and the confession with our mouth comes salvation. Now I want to break this down for just a moment. Because belief produces righteousness. How does that work? And how does confession produce salvation? Does this mean we're supposed to be as the Catholics and go and observe confession? No, that's not what Paul is saying. You see, this is confession to our great high priest, saying, you know what, I am indeed a sinner. And before you can say that with integrity and honesty, a change had to take place in your heart, right? That change is belief that someone can solve your problem. What Paul was saying to the Jew, because one day soon, Israel will be brought back into the main track. That is the theme of these three chapters. Israel is going to be brought back, and the main, God's main program will not be derailed. But in the process of that taking place, Paul must help the Jew, the Israelite, to begin to understand that righteousness is not a work that you can do. And in helping them understand it, he's helping us understand it. Having moved all the way through chapter 3, all the way up through to chapter 8, we've been working on this truth. And Paul summarizes it here for us. Because he says that salvation is from the confession. 
And righteousness is from the belief. That is, you know in your heart that you're a sinner and you know that there is nothing you can do to change it. But there is someone. And that someone is Jesus Christ. And so what happens in your heart is confessed out of your mouth. And that is in the prayer before the Lord saying, you know what? I am a sinner and I'm in desperate need of you, Christ. You see, belief produces righteousness and confession, salvation. Salvation comes through acknowledging to God that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in Him. That is the only way. That is the gospel message in a nutshell. And then Paul comes to this truth. Salvation is available to all who call. And this really had to rub the Israelite just a little bit the wrong way. Because they believed in their zealous pursuit of righteousness by the law that they were the only ones who could. Paul says that's not God's plan of redemption. Now Israel is God's people. And they will continue to be and remain God's people. But that doesn't mean salvation is closed to those of us who are, Jew, or who are Gentiles. Salvation to all who call. Look at verse 11 of Romans chapter 10. It says, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. What an amazing passage. All three of these statements that are made here in these last three verses we're going to look at are amazing. This is an amazing promise on the surface, but it becomes even more incredible when we understand what Paul is doing. Uh, we, I had to skip over for sake of time Deuteronomy, so now I want you to go back to Isaiah rather than to the Deuteronomy passage. Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28. We see something incredible that Paul does uh, as he quotes Isaiah 28, but not exactly. Isaiah 28, uh, verse 16, the Scripture says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am lying in Zion a stone, a testing stone, a costly cornerstone, for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. Now turn back uh, to, to Romans. Keep Keep your finger at least in the Old Testament because we're going to return there in a moment. But look back at the previous chapter because we've already been to Isaiah 28. We were here in chapter 9, verse 33. And so look at Romans chapter 9, verse 33. And it says this, Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now, in the original language, this is an identical copy. Paul is quoting this identically from Isaiah 28. However, he changes it in chapter 10. He changes it to this. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Did you notice the significant change? Let me read 9.33 again. Just the last part. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now chapter 10. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. You see the shift? Paul moves it from the singular to the plural. Whoever. He just opened it up for anyone who would believe. You see, this is, this is amazing. Because here in chapter 10, he changes one, one word. From he, who, to whoever. He is revealing that just like sin's effect has uh, caused all to perish, just like sin has affected everyone, so too the offer of salvation is available to everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. Paul is showing how anyone who believes in Him 
will have their trust in God proven to be well-founded and justified. In other words, what he is saying here is in the time when your salvation is tested, you will understand that your belief in Christ is justified. Specifically, he is talking about not the age we live in, but the age to come. That is to come for us. In other words, the time of the judgment. Paul is saying, you know what? Anyone who believes in him will at the moment that it is absolutely necessary realize beyond a shadow of doubt that their faith in Christ is justified. You may be mocked on this earth. You may be ridiculed for your faith. You may be ridiculed because you're a Christian. But in the day that it matters, you're going to understand that your faith was justified in Christ. In verse 12, let's talk about the people of faith here in Romans. The people of faith. It says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now we're going to begin to dissect this a little bit. Is there a distinction between Jew and Greek? Yes. But not in the way that we would normally think it. Because notice this. It says, for there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on Him. Now, later I'm going to develop why I say yes, because there is a distinction. We are not the same. The church did not take over for Israel. But when it comes to the matter of the Lord, is there one Lord for the Gentiles and one Lord for the Jews? No. Is there one salvation for the Gentiles and one salvation for the Jew? No. You see, clear back in Leviticus, God called Israel to respond in faith, not works. And now Paul is saying, you know what, Jew? The same way, the same way that you are to come to Christ, so is the Greek to come to Christ. And it is by faith. Because there is no distinction. Because you are both desperate sinners, lost without hope, unless Christ did something about it. You can be zealous for the law. doesn't matter. That didn't change anything. You're still desperate. So when it comes to the issue of salvation, there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. The truth that was lost, and this is the truth that was lost to the people of Israel, that they were and continue to be in desperate need of Christ. They didn't believe that they were. They believed that by practicing the law zealously that they would be saved through the righteousness that they believed was produced in the law. That is inaccurate. By moving through these passages in the Old Testament, Paul is seeking to cause understanding that our Christ is the Christ that everyone needs, that all need. Jew or Greek, Gentile, slave or free. The promise of eternal life and the fullness of the riches of life in Christ are available to both Jew and Gentile who obediently follows Christ. Now, there are things that belong specially to Israel that are distinct, that are unique, that are not part of the Gentile church. But when it comes to the issues of salvation, because when God told Abraham, all nations of the earth would be blessed through you. When in the new covenant, we're told of the blessings that come from the blood of Christ. You see, those are blessings that you and I who are Gentiles participate in. And that is where there is no distinction. The promise of eternal life and the fullness of the riches of life in Christ are available to both the Jew and the Gentile who obediently follows Christ. And then look at the privilege. The privilege of salvation. Paul, again, quotes from the Old Testament. He says, For whoever will call on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. We'll be saved. We need to look back at Joel because this is where this uh, passage comes from. This is the same message that Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And it is taken from Joel chapter 2. So turn back to the Old Testament with me for just one more time. Joel chapter 2. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Joel chapter 2 for all you going, that's one of those little prophets. I know they're in there somewhere. Joel chapter 2, verse 32. Because you and I need to understand the context of this. Joel 2, verse 32. And the Scripture says, And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. You see, the context to this verse is the second coming of Christ, building up to the second coming of Christ and the establishment of His kingdom. Now, we are not in that time. You and I do not live, nor will we usher in the second coming of Christ. There is a time period in between us and that. And that is called Jacob's trouble by another prophet, Isaiah. In Jacob's trouble, we recognize that this is called the time that Joel calls the day of the Lord. Where Israel, the line of Jacob, will be turned back to Christ. They will be uh, prepared for Christ And Christ will come again in the second coming. But what is amazing about this truth is that is the context by which Joel writes this. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. And that is the same thought that Peter had in Acts chapter 2 that Paul has in Romans chapter 10. Even in this age, you and I can call upon the name of the Lord. And just like in the Old Testament, the Lord is faithful to forgive our sins and for us to be saved. What an amazing truth. doesn't matter what age you live in. It is transcendent of the time. That salvation comes by faith, not by works. And Paul uses this truth of this verse to illustrate his key point. The one who seeks seeks after God and after God alone is the one that God gives the opportunity to be saved and saved eternally. So the one that seeks what God and God alone can give is the one who will be saved and saved eternally. The context in Joel seems to be describing the remnant of Israel who will at the end of Jacob's trouble believe in Christ. This is the remnant that Paul started out with in chapter 9, Romans. Saying there's always been a remnant of believing Jews. God has not neglected His promises to Israel. God has kept Israel He's kept the remnant so that His promises still remain alive to Israel. The promises made to Israel are not yours because you are a part of the church age. They're not mine because I am part of the church age. They are Israel's. But Paul uses this truth from Joel in this age to reveal that for a time this is open to all who will call on the name of the Lord to be saved. But Paul also uses that, I believe, in the context in which he does to remind us that there is coming a day very soon when Israel will again be the ones that see the fulfillment of the promises made to them. They have not seen them all. They have not seen the land that was totally promised to them. And when we walk through the covenants, it's amazing to me to see the covenants laid out before us. 
And just a brief overview. In the Abrahamic covenant, there were three things that were promised. Land, people, and a nation. When we come to the land covenant, the Palestinian covenant, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, you know what was reiterated in the promise? I told you, the land. Someday they will obtain all of the land that was promised to them. And it's physical land, and they've never done so. In the Davidic covenant, do you know what was promised? A government, a nation. Government. And so in 2 Samuel 7, we have a a promise, reiterated promise of of, of Genesis chapter 12. And it has not yet been fulfilled. And then in the new covenant, do you know what is promised in the new covenant? Because this is what I believe Joel is getting after. In the new covenant, God provides a way, a picture of what is going to happen for the people of Israel to be true followers of Christ. So what were the three aspects? Land was taken care of in the covenant made in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Government was taken care of in 2 Samuel 7. And the people were made righteous because of the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. You and I are partakers of that, but that is not our covenant. That is Israel's covenant. Do you know why? Because God is faithful to keep His word. He is faithful in keeping His promises. And one day Israel will gain all of them. As Gentiles, though, in this age, we have 2020 vision looking back and seeing God's plan of redemption worked out in the history of Israel and the word of the prophets. We can see where the Lord warned, chastened, and prepared the people of Israel, and yet they rejected Him time and time and time again. The way Paul ends in verse 13 should stand as a firm testimony that God is not yet done with Israel. They will receive the promises that were promised to them throughout the Old Testament. At the same time, it should cause you and I to have an urgency among us. Because while it is still the time of the Gentiles, we know that that time is going to end. And while the time is now, we should be sharing the gospel with our friends and our neighbors that they might come to know Christ as Savior. And the message that we should share with them is what Paul said. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. In other words, believe that you're a sinner and that Christ did something about it. You see, that is the message Paul wants Israel to understand. That is his heart's desire from chapter 10, verse 1. His heart's desire is the salvation of Israel. And there is a day where God will answer his heart's desire. In the meantime, we have an incredible opportunity to share the gospel among the Gentiles of which you and I, most likely all of us in this room, are full-blooded Gentiles. You and I should recognize by Paul's use of Joel that there is coming a day when the opportunity for the Gentiles is going to close. Let's share the gospel message. Let's have an urgency, knowing that Jacob's trouble is right around the corner and the age of the church is about to end. We don't know when, but we know it's soon. And so we must have that urgency. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you and praise you for the privilege that it is to study your word. Lord, it is sometimes difficult for us because we don't have the tradition of Jewish history to fall back on. But we do have the Old Testament in which we can look and see with marvelous precision the way your plan has come together. Lord, as we recognize that, we we recognize with increasing awe that you have laid out your plan perfectly. That there is no hiccups, no 
what ifs, no mistakes made in the plan, that it is all how you designed it. Because of the confidence that we have, because of what we see in the past, we have the hope and the promise of the future. We know that you are going to answer Paul's heart's desire, that Israel will again come to know you as Savior, that they will be obedient, and this time it will be eternal. This time your son will establish the throne on this earth. That is David's throne, promised in 2 Samuel 7. Lord, as we consider the truth of all of this, we recognize that the day is short for us Gentiles. We know that this is going to be an increasing urgency in which Paul is going to challenge us, knowing that we sometimes, like Israel, become arrogant in our prosperity and our understanding of the gospel. Lord, for this church, for this local body, I pray that we would not be arrogant, that we would be found faithful in obedience, exercising the urgency by which we share the gospel, that many Gentiles would come to know you as Savior and even those who are of the people Israel, that we would honestly and earnestly pursue the day where Jacob's trouble comes and Israel is turned back to you. Lord, we do love you and thank you for it. I pray that you would give us an increased understanding that your Holy Spirit would use the words that were spoken here today to challenge us to be faithful and obedient students of your word. Lord, we love you and thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen.